0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we're continuing our series, Confident Faith, today with a message titled, Finding and Living in Love, Part 1. So, turning your Bibles to Genesis 24, verses 1 to 14, as we join Dr. Newfeld now.
1: Do you remember when you were back in grade school giving and receiving Valentines. Well, life was so simple then, so easy to express love. I mean, boys could tell their female teachers they loved them without fear of breaking up her marriage. You know, but as we get a little older, we find that love, and by this, I'm speaking about romantic and married love. Well, it's really quite a complicated thing. I remember the day I fell in love with Kathy. We had known each other for a number of years, and I would say that we were good friends. But one day, some friends of mine invited me to supper in their home, and Kathy was invited as well. I remember seeing her sitting on the couch, and I was opposite her, and it was, it was early winter. And she had a black turtleneck sweater on, and, and as I looked at her, I remember thinking how stunning she was. And then came a thought. I thought I would not admit until sometime later. I thought that I was falling in love with her. I was captivated with her. It was as if Cupid had shot my heart through, and I was smitten. A couple of months later, on Valentine's Day, I sent her 12 sweetheart roses, and she's going to tell you that that's the moment that her heart was turned towards me. So listen up, young men. Flowers are going to do that. But we've now been married for so many years, and there are still moments when I look at her, and I think she's stunning, and I think I'm falling in love with her all over again. It remains a mystery to me, and I've never been able to explain love. Let me contrast my story to the story I've encountered in India when I visit. I have a very distinct memory of speaking at a pastor's conference, and a young man was leading in worship, and it was announced that he had just come back from his honeymoon. I made sure to speak to him and his new wife, and I asked them where they had met. And they told me that the first time they had met one another was at the wedding altar. And there they were after their honeymoon, talking to a very curious man from Canada who wanted to know everything. But I noticed they were standing next to each other, and they looked overwhelmingly joyful, They were looking forward to finding out who the other was and learning to love one another. You know, for a great part of history, this, the the second scenario, has been by far the greater part of the human's experience with marriage and with love. They've learned to love each other after marriage, a marriage carefully investigated by their parents. I once spoke with a young woman of Indian descent in the United States, and and she told me that her father was Caucasian, U.S. born, and her mother was Indian. And then she told me their story. Her father was a young man serving in missions in India, and some people from the Christian community asked him if they could arrange a marriage for him. And he reacted like any North American would react, but then they pointed her out from afar, and she was beautiful, and he said, yes, and they arranged it. That's amazing. And from that has come a lifetime of love. And some of us in the West are shocked that love can be found in that manner. Now, I say all of that to warm us up for a a marvelous love story from Genesis 24 and to help apply some lessons of love to those of you who are listening who are either married or who hope one day to be married. Love is something like a violin. It either has one of the sweetest sounds in the world when in the hands of a master or it has one of the most horrible screeching sounds in the world when played by an amateur. It will either bring tears of joy to your eyes for its beauty, or cause the dog to hide under the bed and howl because of its screeching. Love, romantic love, and marital love, like the violin, can be a very difficult thing to master. We're going to learn some lessons from a romantic story in the Bible, and we're carrying on in our story of faith from the life of Abraham. We've come almost to the end of our series, and with that, close to the end of Abraham's life. But as you know, it can't be the end yet. After all, God has promised to bless the whole world through Abraham's seed or through his offspring, and as of yet, Isaac, that is Abraham's son, has no wife. Now, this was the day of arranged marriages, and you might think that that has nothing to do with you. This is a very different time in a very different culture. But I contend this story will have many practical points for you if you're married or if you're looking for the right person. In Genesis 24, we'll find a story that will not only fascinate you, it will tell you how to find love and how to live in love. So I'm reading Genesis 24 verses 1 to 9. Now, Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, Put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. let me explain the introduction to the story. The story has a dramatic beginning. I mean, after all of Abraham's adventures in faith, after all that God has taught him, and after how his life has been shaped to trust God implicitly in everything— It still seems like the future of God's promises hangs perilously by a single thread. God told Abraham that he would bless the whole world through his offspring. He will change all of humanity through him, and indeed, through him, he will bring a Savior into the world. But if Isaac marries improperly, then he will either be assimilated into the Canaanite culture or go back to Mesopotamia, where Abraham came from, in either case. Abraham's adventure in following God would end with him, and all the promises would fail. It has been said that in a relay race, the race is often won or lost with a handing off of the baton. The baton can be fumbled or it can be dropped to the ground, but in any case, the race is lost with a handing off of the baton. And for Abraham himself, his life of trusting in God, while it was a success, he had come not only to believe once, but to trust God as a course of life, so much so that every inclination of his heart was to confidently trust in his God. And so when crisis comes, or when great points of transition are upon him, Abraham reacts out of faith. His first act of faith becomes the practice of faith in which a man responds not by his own wisdom, but out of trust in what God has spoken. And so it's time to pass on the baton, and it's essential that the right wife be found for his son Isaac, so that the two of them, like Abraham and Sarah before them, can learn to walk in faith. And so Abraham calls his servant. He makes him put his hand under his thigh, and it sounds a little bizarre to some of us, for the hand is so close to his genitals. But for Abraham, this matter is not some surreptitious, sensual act. Nothing could be further from the truth. This is an oath the servant makes to Abraham's seed and, in effect, to the entire human race. If the human race is to be blessed, the baton must be passed well. And so the servant is called to swear an oath. He will not only find his son a wife, he is sending him on a sacred mission to secure the future of humanity. And in doing so, Abraham demonstrates that he knows something I fear that so many of us have forgotten. Abraham is very clear about what love and marriage are about. Love and marriage are about the future, future generations, and the future of the faith. Malachi 2, verses 13 to 16, is a prophetic denunciation of Israel at that time. They covered the Lord's altar with tears while they had been faithless toward the wife of their youth. And then after the denunciation comes the word that often startles the modern reader. The prophet asks, when God created marriage, what was he seeking? Are you ready for the answer? You know, verse 15 in that passage answers it. Godly offspring. Now, is marriage about more than children who are walking with God? Well, yes, of course. But marriage is about godly offspring. It's about ensuring that the next generation will have learned from and been discipled by a father and mother who lived out the gospel, not perfectly, but who showed what it was to have trust in God. They were there when the kids were young and directing them and showing them how to live. And they were there when the kids were older and answered their questions and respond to them in in ways that showed faith. I mean, more than anything they were modeling in their lives what godly conduct actually looked like. And that's why Malachi says God was looking for godly offspring. And that's precisely one of the chief objectives that we have in marriage.
0: Celebrate 60 years of Back to the Bible Canada in 2018. 60 years of ministry that took place because of your prayers and support. In celebration, we'll be announcing a number of events, activities, programs, firsts and special resources. The first of those is our 60th anniversary series with founder Theodore Epp and Bible teacher, Dr. John Newfeld. I know you'll be impacted by the sound teaching and inspired by the heart of Theodore Epp for this ministry and the ongoing faithfulness to his original mission and vision. And as our gift to begin the celebrations, we wanna send you this very special five message series for free, just ask. And for those who can remember 30, 40, 50 years of ministry ago, there may be also some special moments to stir your memory. So call for your copy or to make a ministry gift at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca
1: We've been talking about what love and marriage are all about and and we have noticed that, for one, they're about the future. They're about a new generation. Will the next generation be as passionate about faith as Abraham was? Will Isaac and his wife be ready to desert everything to follow God as Abraham and Sarah had done? If the baton falls to the ground, the race is essentially over. Will Isaac run with a baton of faith or will it fall from his fingers to the ground? Will this young man carry on the legacy of faith left to him? Moms and dads, if if you have young children, that's how you must pray for your children. Those of you who are thinking about getting married, that's what love and marriage are really all about. Love and marriage are about the future. Now, look, I know not every couple can have children. In that case, they can still invest in children, the broken and the hurting, children who are without believing parents, children who are in need of more than simply the modeling of their parents. Yes, if you're unable to have children, this word, I think, is also for you. But love and marriage, as I have said, is about more. Love and marriage is a reflection of what it is that you believe and consider to be your highest joy. And that was Abraham's concern. Isaac must not marry a Canaanite woman. You know, for the Canaanite culture was filled with idolatry. It was filled with the values that had destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. It is essential that Isaac and his wife carry on the faith. Isaac's an only child. His mother's dead. His father's old. If he marries into a Canaanite family, that family would become dominant. Then the children of Isaac would eventually belong to the Canaanites, the very people that God had rejected. But if, on the other hand, Isaac goes back to Mesopotamia to look for his wife, chances are he's going to stay there. And then the journey of faith, the journey of leaving his country, his people, and his land and following God to a new land, that journey will effectively be over. Abraham knew that this marriage was, in fact, a reflection of what he believed, what he thought was of most importance, what he lived for. It was about the future. But since Abraham is maturing in his faith, he also intuitively knows that even while so much is at stake in the marriage of Isaac, he also knows what he does now about the matter of marriage is a reflection about whether he actually trusts in God. And so this next step, again, calls for him a response of faith or of trust. You see, Abraham's servant wants to know exactly what Abraham is asking him to do. What if no woman is willing to join Isaac on this wild adventure of faith? What if any sane woman responds by saying, you know, this weird journey of faith is just too strange. Give me a more traditional life. I mean, what then? And it's here that we see that Abraham has truly become a man of faith. He says to his servants, then you're released from your oath. I have no backup plan. Either God will send an angel and do the miraculous, or it won't happen. This is the only plan I have. That's faith. Abraham sets the future of his son's marriage before God, where the plan always belonged. He's a man of faith. He trusts God. Every once in a while, I'll speak to a young woman who will tell me that there are so few available Christian guys. She'll say to me, Pastor, I know I'm supposed to marry a Christian, someone who can share faith with me, but but there's no one out there, and I'm, I'm getting anxious that I'll be left behind. Hear me, who you marry will be one of the most telling statements about whether or not you trust God. When someone says the kind of things that I've just said, I always respond by saying that there are some things that are far worse than being single compromising your faith is far worse than being single. Furthermore, I point out that the Apostle Paul was single. Jesus was single. Great preacher John Chrysostom was single. Some of the greatest missionaries were single. If your marriage becomes an idol, that's something that you do in disobedience to God, will not that idol be cruel? So let's get practical and and this part of the message is for you who are embarking upon a journey of finding love. How do you look for that person who is meritable material? I've heard it often. How am I going to find the person who's right for me? How can I be successful in my quest? Some people make a list of what they're looking for and some people just look for lightning to strike, and some say, Lord, show me the right person, and then forget to wear deodorant. <laughs> That's why they don't look like the right person to others. Now, here's my promise for today and also tomorrow. I want to show you some things from this story that will help you to find life's partner. There's something in this story about Abraham's finding Rebekah that will help you to find God's mate for your life. So let's continue to read Genesis 24, 10 to 14. Then the servant took 10 of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master, and he arose and went to Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, Please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall say, Drink, and I will water your camels, let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Now, don't you wish that courting and dating were just that simple? simply pray, God, I'm about to water my camels, or in your case, I'm about to fill my car with gasoline. And when a woman comes out and says, let me fill your tank, and while I'm at it, can I clean your windshield as well? Let her be the woman. And then, presto, I mean, out comes the dreamboat of your life, and the deal's done. Wow. Yeah, I know that some of you would be quite pleased if it were to happen like that, and others, well, When she comes out and you see her, you'll say, oh Lord, I made a mistake. I should have been filling up at Chevron and not at Esso. (laughs) Well, you know, what's described here hardly ever happens. So what are the principles of embarking upon a journey of love that can be helpful from this passage? But at the very least, would you notice the value of prayer? See, I know people often ask if it's appropriate to do what this servant did, or to put it another way, is it appropriate to put out a fleece? You know the story of the fleece? A man named Gideon was called upon to deliver his people, and he's amazed at the call. So one evening he put out a fleece, that is a piece of wool, and he asked God, if it's truly God's will for him to deliver the people, then next morning there should be dew only on the fleece and the ground around should be dry, and then he would know it was God speaking. So the fleece prayer is a prayer in which we ask God for a definitive sign. So. Should I pray, O oh Lord, if you want me to marry Susan, let her wear that blue dress the next time I see her? You see, I don't think there's any teaching in the Bible in which we're told that that's the way that God wants us to pray. You know, this servant's prayer is not a pattern of how we should pray about getting a mate. So, let me try to put a little rule in this study. This story is not a story about how to use the fleece prayer to find a spouse anymore. Then it's a story about how to marry your cousin, which in fact is what Rebecca was in relationship to Isaac. See, I want you to know that there are many different partners you can marry and be happy. You know, some time ago I read about a Christian dating service in which the ad put it this way. It said, this is a scientific approach to finding a mate. The reason people aren't happy is because they've chosen the wrong mate. Listen, it's nonsense. It's not just one right person out there for you if you want to get married. You could be happily married to any vast number of different people and be blessed and glorify God if you learn to live by biblical principles. Any marriage can be terrific if it's done God's way, any marriage at all. The key to a happy marriage is obedience to the Lord's command and building room in your heart in which you safeguard to love that person only. See, someone's going to say, but what if I miss God's person for my life? You know, when I address this matter tomorrow, I'm going to say there is no just one person. Great many marriages that work work because they put godly principles in their lives. You see, furthermore, as one studies the relationship between Isaac and Rebecca, especially in relationship to their twin boys later on, we can see husband and wife becoming deeply divided, and then they even deceive one another. I hope you heard that. You can marry the right person and then have a bad marriage if you don't learn to live by biblical principles. Faith, obedience, holiness, prayer, willing to love, even when we don't feel like it, all of that is a part of the key. See, there is so much more that we can say about this matter, but for today, Make faith and trust in God your confidence when it comes to your love life. When faith in God is first and your love life is second, you're
0: embarked on a journey that will end in success. John, I think there's a lot of people out there, Christian people, that think God has has made one individual perfect person for me and nobody else will do. Is that true? Yeah, Yeah, I know
1: that it's true that people think that, Ben. That's true. Uh, On the other hand, they're wrong in their thinking when they think that. uh, Because, as a matter of fact, um, God can, if we are yielded to him, use any relationship that we have for his own glory. So I think that we need to say that, you know, whether you married Susie or whether you married Candy, I mean, it doesn't really matter because in the end of the day, if you live according to the principles that God has given you, uh, this will be a loving relationship. But even if you find that one right person and reject the principles that God has given for you, you're gonna make a mess of that thing. So stop looking around to say, did I marry the right one? And start asking the question, Lord, how is it that you want me to love as Christ loved me? Your marriage is going
0: to be a success. Thanks so much, John. Join us again tomorrow for more of the series Confident Faith right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. 60 years of Bible teaching ministry in Canada is what we're celebrating in 2018. For that reason, we're launching a number of special events and activities throughout the year to celebrate God's faithfulness. We begin this month by airing a new series featuring both founder Theodore Epp and Bible teacher Dr. John Newfeld. It's a special series for a number of reasons. First, the consistency of the messages from both men hold the same high standard of teaching you've become confident in. And secondly, there's a wonderful solidarity of mission and passion for the scriptures, the legacy, and vision for the future. As a special gift to you, our friends and supporters, we want to offer this 60th anniversary five-message series on CD as a free gift. All you need to do is contact us today and ask. And to receive more information or support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.